Blakely. I'm Caleb. And this is the Nightmare on 6th Street podcast. Um, how are you doing? You good? Good. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. You ready to hear some spooky cursed object stories? Yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, I know I said last episode that I was going to do aliens like alien encounters, but I just, I couldn't get into it. It wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't working out for me. So I went back to cursed objects and, um, I know you know about three of them, but, and I know you know about the fourth one, but I don't know if you know the whole story about Annabelle. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm excited to hear. Okay, cool. All right. Well then let's start with the first one. Um, the berserk video game cabinet. Now this one is, a cursed object, but it's more like true crimey rather than, I mean, it's still scary, yeah. but doesn't have that paranormal vibe to it. But yeah. uh, anyway, this is um, a video game cabinet, uh, specifically the game Berserk. It was created by Alan McNeil in the 1980s, and it was one of the first video games to include a voice sense, a voice synthesizer. Mm. Um, he based the game on a nightmare he had where he had to fight off a bunch of robots. And so the object of the game is to destroy all the robots and then move on to the next maze in the game. But if you spend too much time on one maze, a smiley face will appear named Evil Otto. And in the game, Evil Otto pretty much has no rules. He could go wherever he wants in the maze and he can't be killed. But if he catches you, then you die. Game over. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Evil Otto was based on a security guard, David Otto, at one of McNeil's previous employers. And he said that um, David Otto would smile at you while he was chewing you out. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, that's, (laughs) yeah. Um, So in the early 80s in Calumet City, Illinois, Um, Calumet City is right on the border of Indiana at the tip of Lake Michigan. Mm -hmm. There was a place called Friar Tuck's Game Room. Think like medieval times decor, but in an arcade. Okay. Mm -hmm. So January 12th, 1981, 19-year-old Jeff Daly from Virginia is playing video games at Friar Tuck's. And he decides to try Berserk. So he puts his quarters in and starts playing, and hours go by of him playing this game. He finally decides to call it quits, and the game, when the game ends, his score is 16,660. So as soon as he's done playing this game, he suffers a major heart attack and dies in the game room. Coincidence? Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) So because of his high score, his death is also known as the 666 death. But most people think this one's just an urban legend because there's like little to no credible information that's been found on him. But these next two deaths, they definitely happened. Like they're not urban legends. Uh, So the second... Uh, second victim is Peter Bukowski or Burkowski. I saw both spellings when I was researching it. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, he was from South Holland, Illinois, and he died on April 3rd, 1982. Tom Blankley the former owner of Friar Tuck said that Bukowski was on that game every chance he could get, sometimes with a friend, but a lot of the time alone. He loved it. He was a real nice kid, quiet and kind of shy, no problems. So 
It was early in Illinois, and it was cold and snowing, and uh, Peter and his friends, they decide to walk to the arcade, which was about four miles from his house, which, that's a pretty good, it's a pretty good walk. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's a long walk. Mm -hmm. So, on the way there, he complains to his friends that he's short of breath, so they stop and get a drink before they continue their trek to the arcade. They get there, and they decide to play Berserk. He's playing the game, having a great time, and, you know, he even gets, like, top scores twice on the game. So he leaves that game and decides to go play another one. And he died from a heart attack on the way to the next game. Wow. So I found in a 1982 article from the Chicago Tribune that the cops did investigate the game cabinet, but they didn't find anything wrong with it. Like, no faulty wires, no electrical issues, nothing. Hmm. But his autopsy did reveal that he had scarring on his heart from a pre-existing condition. So, you know, maybe it was one of those things where he just, like, gets worked up or, like, gets excited playing the game and, like, his heart, you know, and then after walking four miles, Mm -hmm. being short of breath, it probably just all caught up with him. But six years later, in 1988... Edward Clark Jr., age 17, and his friends are at Friar Tucks playing video games. They go to the Berserk game cabinet and they see some uh, quarters sitting on the machine. So they put them in the cabinet and start playing the game. Uh, This is where Pedro Roberts, age 16, comes in. Pedro sees Edward playing the game and goes up to him and is like, the quarters that were left on the machine are mine and I want them back. And Edward's like, uh, no. Like, you know, how do, you, how do I know they're yours? Yeah, yeah. Um, so then they start arguing, and they eventually get kicked out of the arcade. The manager and the staff were like, you know, hey, you, you can't fight in here, you know, so y'all are going to have to leave. Um, so when Pedro and Edward left, the staff made Pedro leave first, and then 10 minutes later, they um, had Edward leave. And the staff wanted to avoid them just leaving and fighting again, so he had he sent Pedro off in one direction and then Edward off in the other direction. Mm-hmm. But, you know, unfortunately, Edward did not end up listening, and he walked in the same direction as Pedro. So he and his friends get um, to the alley where Pedro's hiding, and Pedro's, like, hiding there and waiting for them. Pedro jumps out of his hiding spot and stabbed Edward in the chest, and he was taken to the hospital but passed away shortly after arriving, and that was on March 20th, 1988. That's horrible. Quarters. Yeah, quarters. That's it. That's what you were fighting over was quarters. Now you don't get to play at all. I know, right? I mean, do, do they have video games in prison? Yeah. They do? Some people do. What? Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they have TVs and stuff like that, especially people that serve, like, life sentences. They have TVs and, yeah, games and things like that. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Pedro spent two years in jail and was convicted of second-degree murder in 1990 with eligibility for parole after three years. Mm-hmm. So, I, I really couldn't find anything after that on if he got out or what, what he's doing, so... Yeah, that's not... Not that long of a time for killing somebody. I know, right? Yeah. Um, And here's a creepy fun fact. So, um, there are two water towers in the town, 
and they have smiley faces painted on them, mm-hmm. and they are named Mr. and Miss Smiley, and they were actually painted before the video game came out in 1973. Wild. So that's a weird little tie-in. Yeah. All right, let's see. All right, let's do the Dybbuk box next. Okay. Okay. Um, the Dybbuk box was... Uh, it's actually really, really popular, and a movie came out in 2012 um, about it, kind of called the uh, the possession. Yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start with what a dibic is. So the word dibic means to cling, and a dibic is a ghost or a disturbed soul from Jewish folklore that inhabits the body of a living soul. They usually have unfinished business or are unable to move on. And in some cases and stories, they can be described as sinister souls who are seeking refuge from the afterlife. And the only way to get rid of them, you know, if one like enters your body is they have to be exercised. Oh, okay. So it sounds like a terrible time. Um, <laughs> yeah. The story starts out with uh, Havela. Havela escaped Nazi-occupied Poland and went to Spain to seek refuge. She left behind all of her family members because uh, they did not make it through the Holocaust. Um, when the war ended, she ended up coming to the U.S. And the only three items that she brought with her... Uh, um, hold on, we're going to have to redo that. Okay. But anyway... So when the war ended, she ended up coming to the U.S. Mm-hmm. and only brought three items with her. And one of those items was the Dybbuk box. Havela lived to be 103. And when she passed away, her family decided to hold an estate sale to get rid of some of her belongings. This is where Kevin Manis from Portland, Oregon comes in. Manis owned a furniture restoration business and decided to go to the estate sale. That estate sale was put on by Havela's granddaughter. Um, he just wanted to see if he could like find anything to fix up and sell in his shop. Yeah. So he buys the cabinet and a couple other things. But before he leaves, Havela's granddaughter is like, don't open that box. If you do, like bad things are going to happen. And he's like, eh, you know, whatever. Okay, thanks. And leaves. Yeah, heed the warning. You know what? If someone told me that shit like that, I'd be like, you know what? I don't even want this anymore. Same. You keep it. It's never coming home with me. Yeah. My first question would be like, why is this even out here? Yeah. Like, why are you trying to get rid of it? Like, hide it so nobody else has to deal with it. Yeah. Throw it out in the ocean. Yep. So he takes the box uh, back to his shop and leaves. Later, he gets a phone call uh, from a lady who he employed at the shop, and she is just frantic. She tells him she thinks someone's in the shop because she can hear someone cussing and smashing like light bulbs everywhere. So she tries to get out, but she can't because all the doors are locked. Manus arrives, and while the doors were locked, uh, there wasn't any signs of an intruder or like somebody trying to break in. Mm. But he does notice that there are smashed light bulbs all over the ground. You know, and this lady, she'd worked with him for like two years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that day she was like, nope, I'm out. I'm done. I, I'm not working here anymore. Um, another scary thing that happened, uh, the brother of another one of empl- his employees was visiting the shop one day and he accidentally knocked the box off the shelf. And he committed suicide shortly after that. 
a couple of years later, uh, the employee whose brother had died also committed suicide. Wow. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, he's, he still obviously has the box at this point. Mm -hmm. So he's fixing up the box to give to his mom for her birthday. Um, I don't think I'd give my mom (laughs) something like that for her birthday. No, horrible gift. Yeah. So he opens it while he's fixing it up and he finds that inside there are a couple of things. He finds two locks of hair, a dried rosebud, two wheat pennies from the years 1925 and 1928, a golden wine cup, a four-legged candlestick, and a smallish granite sculpture with the word shalom carved into it. Now, shalom, I believe, means peace in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And then on the back of the box, there's like uh, carved is a really important prayer to the Jewish religion called the Shema. And Shema means to hear. So Halloween rolls around and Manus goes to his mom to give her the box for her birthday. Ida, his mom, opens up the box and she said that when she opened it up, she felt like this cold breeze come out of the box and it just felt like pure evil. And then, like no shit, right after she opens this box, she has a stroke. Like right then and there. The box of death. Uh, Yeah. So... And it actually wasn't just Ida who was affected by the box, but multiple family members of his had experienced some creepy things too. His sister said that doors to the, the doors to the box would open by themselves. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no way, I'm not dealing with this and no. gives a box back to her brother. So then Manus gives a box to his brother and sister-in-law and they were also like, no, I don't want this. They said that weird smells would come from the box. His brother would smell jasmine randomly, but his sister-in-law would smell cat urine. <laughs> That's weird. What two different smells, you know? Yeah. To, like one pleasant and one that's just absolutely vile. Mm-hmm. So they'd had enough of the box and they give it back to Manis. So then Manis gives it to the girlfriend that he had at the time and she kept it for a while and then she was also like, no, thank you. And she gives it back to him. Uh, Manis and his siblings would also have the same reoccurring nightmares. They would all dream of an old woman with sunken eyes, like trying to get them. Yeah. Yeah, no thanks. No. I, I would be done. I, You know, and it's always weird to me in stories like this how people are, like, they just keep these things around. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Something new introduced into your environment. Weird things start happening. Get rid of the new thing that was introduced into the environment. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I guess it wouldn't make for a good story if they didn't get rid of it. But I'd rather have a really boring story than be haunted haunted yeah Yeah. even in your dreams Mm -hmm. okay so the girlfriend gives it back and when it's put back into manis uh possession he starts seeing like shadow things out of the corner of his eye Mm -hmm. and the nightmares that him and his siblings were having well his got worse and he would wake up with scratches and bite marks on him Mm -mm. and here's a quote i found uh from manis about his dream He said, I find myself walking with a friend, usually someone I know well and trust at some point in the dream. I find myself looking into the eyes of the person that I am with. It is then that I realize that there is something different, something evil looking back at me. 
At this point in my dream, the person I am with changes into what can only be described as the most gruesome, demonic-looking hag that I have ever seen. This hag proceeds then to beat the living tar out of me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that would just suck. Yeah. Uh, So he tries to get rid of the box again and sells it to a couple, but they returned it like a couple days later and left a note on it saying, this has bad darkness. Smart. Yep. And I feel like at this point he's really had enough because he lists it for sale on eBay in 2003 and he posts a picture and everything. Um, And I found the eBay description. So I'm going to read that to you. Okay. Um, He said, I would destroy this thing in a second, except I really don't have any understanding of what I may or may not be dealing with. I am afraid, and I do mean afraid, that if I destroy the cabinet, whatever it is that seems to have come with the cabinet may just stay here with me. I have been told that there are people who shop on eBay that understand these kinds of things and specifically look for these items. If you are one of those people, please, please buy this cabinet and do whatever you do with a thing like this. Help me. Yeah, I would not click on that. I wouldn't either. Um, But someone did because the next um, owner of the Dybbuk box is Yosef Nitschke. Mm-hmm. I, I, I looked up the pronunciation, so I'm pretty, I hope I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was a student at Truman State University in Missouri. So Nitschke buys the box, takes the box home, and, you know, what do you know, haunted. He and his roommates start experiencing creepy things like bug infestations, electronics malfunctioning, various health issues, visions of dark, blurry things, light bulbs breaking, and weird smells. So that kind of tracks with... Yeah. Yeah. Too much going on. Yep. Um, So they were all pretty freaked out, I'm sure. And uh, then Nitschke's hair starts falling out. Mm -hmm. So he goes to the doctor, gets some tests done, and everything comes back fine. He's, um, you know, got a clean bill of health. Nothing is wrong. Um, You know, but after everything that happened, you know, his hair falling out, all the tests being came back fine, he's, he's had enough of the box, and he decides to sell it in 2004. The buyer this time is Jason Haxton. Uh, Haxton is the director of the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine mm-hmm. in Kirksville, Missouri, and he studies antiques and ancient artifacts, and he's studied them for many, many years. Um, a couple of months after buying the box, weird shit starts to happen to him, too. He'd suffer from random choking fits. He'd have hives and welts all over his body. His eyes would bleed. And he would also have the strange dreams about the old lady with the sunken eyes. Oh, no. Okay. So, like I mentioned before, Haxton studied antiques and was really curious about the box. He wanted to get more of a backstory on the box uh, because he was writing a book about it, and he just wanted to make sure everything was correct and you know wasn't missing any information. Yeah. Um, so he called Manis to ask for more information on the origins of the box, and was also like, "Hey, I need your help to get rid of the Dybbuk in this box." So Manus is like, okay. And he goes back to visit Havela's granddaughter. And she's like, well, you're going to have to talk to Sophie. And he's probably like, you know, who is Sophie? He's 
hasn't heard of a Sophie until up at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so Manis meets with Sophie and she explains that on the night of November 10th, 1938, her and Havela made a spirit board and they accidentally summoned an evil spirit. <laughs> like, oops. I mean, I get it. Like Ouija boards, they look cool, mm-hmm. but no pass. I've never played with one and I will never to this day. Have you ever tried one? Yeah, I have a couple times. Was, I used to have one. Was it scary? Not really. Nothing ever happened. Really? No. Ooh. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah. That's really good. Um, so they tried to bind the spirit that they had summoned, but they failed. Um, after the war was over, they tried to bind it again, and this time they succeeded, and they were able to bind it to the box. Um, Haxton made... He really, really made the Dybbuk box popular. He wrote a book in 2011 about it, mm-hmm. and I believe he and Manis worked as production consultants on the movie The Possession. Um, eventually, Haxton decides to bury the box in an undisclosed location. Years later, he digs it back up and sells it to Zach Baggins in 2016. Uh, but that's this isn't the end. Like, you'd think it would end after it was out of everybody's possession, yeah. but no. Um, in 2021, Kevin Manis came forward and said that he has the truth about the Dybbuk box. Charles Moss from Input Magazine wrote an article all about it, and it was a really, really cool read, very well put together, and um, he he has like a ton more information that I think everybody should read to get really get the whole picture because it's really wild, and yeah, just very interesting. Um, but in 2021, Manis told Charles Moss that I am a creative writer. The Dybbuk Box is a story that I created, and the Dybbuk Box story has done exactly what I intended it to do when I posted it 20 years ago. And Moss asks, you know, like, which is what? Uh-huh. And Manis replies, which is to become an interactive horror story in real time. He admitted that he would add a little bit here and there to the story over the years mm-hmm. to kind of keep it going and keep it relevant. And um, from what I could find, the only thing he said that was true was that he did buy the box from an estate sale and that his mom really did have a stroke on Halloween. But apparently he just made the whole thing up. That's crazy. And it's crazy that, I mean, everyone just bought into it. Yeah. It really worked. It worked it, really well. It, it really is an interactive horror story in real time. Yeah. Um. I also think it's kind of worth a mention that there was no such thing as a Dybbuk box before Manus made the listing. Like, Dybbuks are real things in, like, folklore. Uh But as far as them, like, actually having a box, like, that's not a thing. Um, Manus actually carved the Shema on the back of the box, and he made the granite statue that was inside of the box. Two of his friends confirmed it because the hair in the box belonged to one of them. Mm. But Haxton thinks that Manus probably cursed it with Kabbalah and said that everything that happened to him in regards to, like, having the box is true. Like, bleeding eyes, biting, scratching, all that thing, that's true. It's crazy. Yep. And I do have a creepy fun fact about this one also. Okay. Uh, Post Malone visited Zach Baggins' museum, and uh, he was, like, near the Dybbuk box. 
And he started to have some bad luck after that. His house was broken into. He got into a car accident. And then the plane tires of the plane that he was on, they blew out. So Hmm. maybe it's like just does hold some bad energy or something. Maybe. Or it's maybe it's manifestation. You're like manifesting your own problems because you think like yeah. this box is evil. It's causing all these bad things. And then. Yeah, possibly. That's all you're thinking about. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Now, now this one, the conjured chest, uh-huh. this one really freaked me out. Honestly, just for the sheer amount of people that died around it. Um. The conjured chest originates from Kentucky. It was around like 1830. Jeremiah Graham, who has been described as the devil incarnate, Mm -hmm. was a slave owner. He ordered one of his slaves named Remus to build his unborn child a chest of drawers. Remus works really hard building the chest for Graham. And when he finishes the chest, like Graham's furious. So for whatever reason, he hates the chest and he beats Remus to death. Mm. Um, understandably, the other slaves Graham owned, they were pissed, so they cursed the chest by placing dried owl's blood inside the chest while they chanted something called the Dirge of Conjure. I think I'm saying that word right. It's like D-I-R-G-E. Dirge? Dirge? I'm not for sure. I'm not, I can... Uh, so, I don't know. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Well, uh, that curse followed his descendants for like years and years and years. The chest was put in the nursery of Graham's firstborn child. They filled it up with his clothes, you know, preparing for him to get there. Yeah. And as soon after the baby was born, he died. The second victim was Graham's nephew. His clothes were put in the chest, but he didn't die right away. He made it all the way to his 21st birthday before he was stabbed to death by a servant. Wow. So the chest was moved to Tennessee after that into the home of Graham's daughter, Catherine. Now, Catherine married John Ryan. They lived on a farm, you know, and it was really hard work for him. They had like six kids and, you know, that's a ton of mouths to feed. So John Ryan went to New Orleans to find work. After he left, Catherine got sick and died. A week later... John Ryan dies after he was hit in the head with a stage plank. So John Ryan and Catherine's daughter, Eliza, and her husband, John David Gregory, become the owners of the chest next. They had a daughter named Louise who died at the age of 10 after she used the chest. After Louise, Stella Stone Cipher, their daughter-in-law, used the chest to store her wedding gown. Two years later, after using the chest, she dies. Mm. Mabel Louise White, she's a relative on the Gregory side. She comes to live with them, and she marries a man named Wilbur Harlan. Four years into their marriage, they have a baby boy named Chester. They needed a dresser to store his clothes, so they put his clothes in the chest. Two weeks later, baby Chester dies. No, a horrible. Mm-hmm. That's awful. I'm not. I'm not even done. There's still more people. (laughs) So many more deaths to talk about. Yeah. (laughs) So Mabel's husband, Wilbur, uses the chest, and he dies a couple years later. 
The victim after him is John David Gregory's sister. Her name was Lucy Gregory. It's getting close to Christmas, so she decides to knit her son Emmett a Christmas gift. It was a pair of gloves and a scarf. She obviously needed a place to hide those two things so Mm -hmm. they wouldn't find it, Um, but her hiding place was the chest. So in December, before Christmas, Emmett was walking along a train trestle and fell 30 feet to his death. Eliza and John David Gregory, they had another daughter named Nellie Gregory. She gets married, needs a place to keep her dressed, and you guessed it, puts it in the chest. <laughs> Shortly after she did that, her husband up and leaves her. And then after that, John David Gregory also dies. I can't imagine that Eliza could cope with like all the death around her. Yeah. So after her husband died, she committed suicide. Um, Eliza had a granddaughter. Her name was Virginia Carey Hudson. Virginia got married, had kids, and needed a place to put their clothes. Her first child was born premature and died right after she put the baby's clothes in the chest. Her second daughter, Anne, her clothes were put in the chest, and when Anne was little, she suffered from polio and had symptoms of it her whole life. Virginia also had another daughter, um, whose name was also Virginia, and she married Wilbur Brister. They get married, she puts her wedding clothes in the chest. He gets sick and has to have an appendectomy and dies from an overdose of ether. So I'm, I'm assuming it was probably, um, I mean, what they used ether to like knock people out, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some type of anesthesia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Virginia also had a son and he's at school one day and while he's there, he gets stabbed in the hand and he would be correct in assuming that he put his clothes in the chest. (laughs) They also had a neighbor who needed a place to store all of his hunting clothes. So they let him use the chest. He goes hunting and is accidentally shot in the chest and dies. At this point, Virginia Hudson, she's had enough. Uh, So she asked Sally, one of their family's servants, if she knows how to break the curse. Sally said yes. So to break the curse, they would need an owl given by a friend. You couldn't just go out and buy one. Um, And they would also need willow tree leaves, one for each of the victims, and the tree had to be planted by a friend. Luckily, Virginia had these things. She had an owl someone had gifted her years earlier and a friend who had a willow tree in her front yard. So they get the owl and the leaves, and they boil the leaves all night while the owl keeps watch. After that, they put the liquid into a jug and bury it under a flowering lilac with the jug handle facing east. Now, they did this because the sun comes from the east, and Sally said that the devil hates the light. Uh, Sally said they would know if it worked if one of them died when the last leaves fall from the flowering lilac. Hmm. Sally dies a couple months later, and I guess the curse was broken. Wow. Mm-hmm. In 1976, it was donated to the Kentucky Historical Society in Frankfort, Kentucky, and it's still there to this day. Uh, the original owl feathers are in the top drawer. That's cool. And, like, it's got, like, some kind of little, like, message written in it as well. Um, 
On Zach Baggins' TV show, Deadly Possessions, uh, Dr. Beverly Kinzel came to talk about the chest. The chest had once belonged to her grandmother's grandmother, Eliza. Uh, Beverly remembered as a child being scared by the chest and that her mother would turn the handles inward to prevent people from putting their things in the chest. Mm-hmm. Um, so Zach Baggins decides to do an investigation on the chest and asks Beverly if she'll participate. She agrees, and he starts the test. He measures her electromagnetic, electromagnetic energy and moves the device to Beverly, and it just starts going crazy, like picking up a lot of energy near her. Uh, he moves it like away from her. It does nothing. It's... You know, but moves it back to her. Yeah. It's going crazy. Uh, For the next test, they have Beverly stand next to the chest, and they snap some pictures of her with the full-spectrum camera. And you said that's, like, catches all the colors. Is that what it is? Yeah, like uh, body heat. Oh, okay. Yeah, things like that. All right, so they take some pictures of her, and in one of the photos of her, it looks like an orb is on the right-hand side of her. Mm. So they look closer at the orb, and they realize that it resembles an owl. No, oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I wouldn't like that at all. No. All right, so that's that one. All right, I got one more. It's the last one. Okay. This one is Annabelle. Um, have you seen that movie? Yeah. Is it scary? I've never watched it. It looked too scary for me. Um, I own it actually and I don't think I ever made it all the way through uh, it's really slow mm-hmm. and nothing just ever caught my attention like I don't know okay well I just I just saw like the trailer for it and it's like while I love scary things that just looked I was like I don't want to watch this this looks too scary for me yeah it's creepy I don't know I could revisit it well this story starts out with Annabelle Um, Annabelle was purchased in a thrift store as a birthday gift for a woman named Donna. And Annabelle isn't like the doll in the movie. Um, The original Annabelle, she was like a Raggedy Ann doll. Okay. So Donna brought the home or the doll home after her birthday. And, you know, she honestly really liked the doll and was excited to have it. Mm -hmm. But shortly after bringing Annabelle into the house, weird shit started happened uh, or started to happen. It started with just, like, random minor things. Like, Annabelle would be moved to a different spot, or she would be, like, laying on the floor, or would have fallen over from where she's sitting. Yeah. And at first, Donna and her roommate, Angie, they thought, you know, they were just forgetting that they left the doll there, or that, you know, somebody was playing a trick. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't think that it was, like, actually the doll moving. But as things do... In stories like this, uh, things start to escalate. Yeah. Uh, Donna and Angie would find pieces of parchment all over the house, like parchment paper. Yeah. And written on it would be, help us. I also saw that on one piece of the paper, it said, help Lou. Uh, And this is weird because they didn't have parchment paper in their house. They'd never bought it. They'd never used any parchment paper before. That's interesting. Yeah. So understandably, they were freaked out. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what really was the final straw before they sought help was Donna came home one day and found Annabelle in her bed. And Annabelle, the doll, had blood on her hands. 
what do you do? I, you, like, throw the doll away. I would not. It's like it's like we were talking about earlier. There's, like, a common denominator of just, like, weird shit happening to yeah. you. Like, like, that common denominator is, like, probably the last object you brought into your house. You should get rid of it. Absolutely. Like, well, she, she calls a psychic medium. The medium comes over to the house and investigates uh, Annabelle and tells Angie and Donna that a long time ago, there was a little seven-year-old girl named Annabelle. She used to live on the, uh, property, uh, the property that the apartments were built on mm-hmm. and that she was the one that was inhabiting the doll's body. Uh, the medium said that Annabelle wanted to stay in the doll because she liked it and she liked being with Donna and Angie. That's <laughs> so weird. So instead of like doing like the rational thing here and being like, no, mm-hmm. absolutely not. You can have this doll, get it out of my home. They felt sorry for the little girl. So they decided to let her stay. Oh, that's so weird. It really is. Yeah. It's, it's funny to me. I'll never understand like people's thinking like, oh, you know what? It's just a seven year old girl inhabiting like her spirit inhabiting a doll. Let's yeah. let it stay here. No, like just the feeling of it watching you. I would hate that. Like 100% of the time. Yeah. I don't know. It's not for me. That's a hard no. Um, So Donna and Angie had a friend named Lou, and he would come over to hang out every now and then, and he did not like the doll at all. Mm -hmm. He didn't think it was cute or that a little girl was residing in the doll. He thought it was like evil and possessed. Like he hated it. Yeah. And Annabelle didn't like Lou either. One night, he said he saw the doll at the foot of his bed and that it floated up from the end of the bed and began to strangle him. No, 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 no. So he, like, blacked out from being choked, and he knocked him out, you know, and he didn't wake up until later that morning, until that morning. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. I mean, imagine you wake up and a doll is just floating and then starts choking you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not like you can fight this thing. What are you fighting, a sp- evil yeah. spirit? Yeah, you're just like swinging at the air, swinging at nothing. Oh no. my gosh, that's terrifying. Well, another time Lou came into the apartment and he thought somebody had broke in. So he's going through the house, checking to make sure everything's okay. And he gets to Donna's room where Annabelle is. And he, you know, he looks in the room, everything looks okay. He turns around to leave the room, and when he does, he feels something scratch him. He pulls up his shirt, and he has seven scratch marks Uh, along him. Like, uh, deep ones. So, you know, Donna's starting to think that it's not a little girl in the doll, (laughs) but, like, something evil. So she makes a phone call to a local priest, and the priest refers them to the Warners. Mm -hmm. So the Warners come over to investigate, and after they do their investigation, they determine that it's not a little girl living in the doll's body, but a violent, demonic entity that was using the doll as a conduit. And they also said that since demons can't possess inanimate objects, they thought that the spirit in the doll had probably hoped to hang around long enough to possess either Donna, Angie, or Lou. Wow. I don't think it was, I think it was like probably one of the girls that it was trying to possess. Yeah. Because this thing like hated Lou. <laughs> like, 
You know, like I can't uh, ima- imagine a demon wanting to go into the body of someone it hated. This is true. I mean, or maybe just to torture him. But yeah, um, I don't know. So the Warners, they have a priest come and exercise the house, and they take Annabelle back to their home. On the way back to the Warners' home, Annabelle is not happy and takes it out on the Warrens by almost getting them into multiple car accidents. Their brakes and power steering would fail, and then their car would stall out just multiple times. So Ed Warren, you know, he's had enough. He's annoyed. It's just trying to get home. He splashed the doll with holy water, and it must have worked because things were quiet the rest of the way home. Mm. Um, but Annabelle continued to mess with the Warrens weeks after being brought to their house. Uh, she would move rooms, and she was actually seen, like, levitating. Oh, my gosh. So they call a Catholic priest to come over and exercise the doll. But while he's there, he verbally taunts Annabelle. Why? I don't know. Like, I wouldn't even joke around about it. No. You know? And that turned out to be like a huge mistake on his part. Of course. Because when he left the Warrens' house, his brakes failed, and he was in an accident that left him seriously injured. This is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. I know, isn't it? Yeah. just like... So, you know, they kept her around. They kept her in, like, their museum, and they put her in a glass box. Mm-hmm. And she's still in the glass box to this day. And there are actually some people that have claimed that she moves around in the box periodically. Oh, my God. It, I mean, it. I don't even know if I'd like to see that or not. It sounds tempting, but it does. I don't want to tempt fate like that. I know. That's what I'm saying. Because they have, like, it's closed down now, I believe, because uh, of, like, zoning issues. Uh, okay. They have their museum, but they have all these, like, cursed objects in there. Yeah. Not too many curses. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to chance it. No. I would love to see it, but I'm, I also like my life just the way it is. Yeah. And I don't want to try and, like mess it up with that no I'm, I'm i'm with you on that no but that's uh that's all i have for cursed objects today no that's great yep a lot of good stories well thank you thank you you're welcome uh, thanks for listening yeah see you later